says, and again, he, Jesus, that is, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and it was scorched, because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30 fold, some 60 and some 100. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And Father, we humbly ask that you would help us now to understand the word of God and that even Jesus, as you gave understanding and clarity to your disciples in regards to this parable, Lord, we ask that as always by your spirit's ministry that you again would be our teacher and that you would speak to us by your spirit through what you've spoken here in your word this day. And we ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't think we should ever overlook the importance of preparation, the value of being properly prepared, because that is often the determining factor of outcomes. It's also the determining factor, many a times, to the extent of successful results. And we see that truth being conveyed here very clearly by our Lord in this passage, particularly regarding having a prepared heart condition, as we're going to see, for the planning of the seed of the word of God down into our soul. And in the same way that we understand the general principle from gardening or farming, that the seed itself has all it needs contained within it to successfully produce life and growth and a harvest, yet that seed itself, though it has all it needs to produce life, is put into soil, but yet the condition of the soil that that seed arrives upon also has a very strong bearing regarding whether or not that seed will produce and how well it will produce. The condition of the soil if it's unprepared, hinders the seed as compared to prepared soil enhances the growth and the production of the seed. And the same principle carries over into the spiritual life regarding the seed, as Jesus is going to show us, the seed of God's word being sown into human hearts because the condition of our heart greatly, greatly matters. It is a strong determining factor. Now, you'll remember in our last study in Mark's gospel, the last thing Jesus, we just saw him declaring, was an indication of who his spiritual family really was. He had said, in fact, in the last verses of Mark chapter 3, my true or my eternal family, he said there, look at it, verse 3, the last verse, is whoever does the will of God. 
That is, whoever hears what God says through his word and by his spirit and then actually puts it into practice, walks it out, obeys it, responds to it, and actually does the will of God, that that is a revelation of those who are part of the family of God. Now, having just said that, verse 1 of chapter 4, look with me there, begins saying, and again, Jesus began to teach by the sea. Now, of course, it's referring to the Sea of Galilee there in the upper region. He's there at the Sea of Galilee. He again begins to speak and teach, and notice what happens. Verse 1, a great multitude was gathered to him so that he then got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing toward the sea. So his attendance swelled, if you would, to greater numbers as Jesus was teaching this Bible study, as he was sharing the word of God, Jesus being sensitive to what was best for the ministry situation, at this point, lovingly and very wisely, notice, makes practical accommodations for the swelling multitude because it mattered very much to Jesus that all of them would be able to hear the word of God. And it was very important to him that any who were interested in, any who were desirous of, able to hear the word, would be able to. Now, keep in mind kind of the idea of what's happening here. Standing on the shoreline, right? We should be able to reconcile this. We live in a beach community region here. Standing on the shoreline where Jesus was on the beach, a, a, a large assembly begins to gather around, and the sound of his voice, again, there was an amplification, would only travel so far. So recognizing that those closer to me are going to be able to hear what I'm saying, but those further back and further back and further back are going to have more difficulty hearing the voice of the Lord carrying to them. Jesus, wanting all to be able to hear his voice and what he was saying, wanted to make sure everyone could hear what God was saying. He wisely takes practical steps to best make preparation so that everyone, as many as possible, could hear the word of God. And what he does, we see there in verse 1, is he practically comes up with this idea, wonderful, probably turns to one of his disciples, remember that Peter and James, John, many of them were fishermen, and he says, look, where, where's one of your boats? Get one of your boats. He gets into the boat. The boat pushes a little bit offshore, he sits up on the edge of the boat. All the people in the crowds are back on the shoreline out in front of him, and it creates kind of a natural amphitheater effect. As now he pushes back from the shore a little bit, and everyone is on the shoreline, and now his voice would carry much better through the practical adjustment, through the amphitheater effect, and as many people as possible are able to hear the word of the Lord. And I look at passages of Scripture like this, and I think to myself, I love how very practical Jesus was. How supernaturally, in natural ways, how very supernaturally, naturally, Jesus found ways to best accommodate, to do practical things, to be flexible, to make adjustments. And he was doing very important spiritual ministry, but he also was very wise, very practical, and he just accommodates this situation so more people can hear the word of God and using wisdom in his circumstances. I love to see the ministry, the way he's conducting it. Verse 2 goes on to say, And then he taught them many things by 
parables. So again, as we saw in chapter 3, Jesus now using this style of teaching from time to time of speaking in parables. And as we explained last time in chapter 3, a parable, it's a compound word. One means alongside of, the other word means to lay down something. And what a parable basically is, as we said in our study in chapter 3, is laying down an earthly story or an earthly picture next to a spiritual truth. So that by laying down the story or the picture next to a spiritual truth, it's much easier for the listener to be able to grab hold of the understanding and to have more clarity to connect the dots, if you would, by using the analogy or the illustration. And typically with a parable, there's usually one main point behind it. And that's very important when you read parables in the gospel to understand there's typically in a parable a primary lesson, one main thing as a theme being communicated. Where we can get off track sometimes with parables is when we try and dissect every single little detail and make a meaning out of every word. That can be something, particularly if it's a parable unlike the one that we have today, where Jesus straight out tells the meaning of it. Many parables we have, Jesus didn't interpret for us. He just gave the parable. And so a real key with a parable, when you're understanding it on your own, you don't have Jesus giving commentary, one main truth. Don't try and dissect every little thing or you'll come up with some really weird ideas. Wise man often said before, if you torture any text long enough, you can get it to say whatever you want. So be careful of that. So Jesus here is going to speak to them again in a parable, and it says, verse 2, going on, that he said to them in his teaching, notice this first word of chapter 3, it should have an exclamation point after it in your Bible, his first word before he says anything is, listen, listen. With an emphasis and an exclamation point, the idea of listen is pay close attention to what's being said here. Be fully alert, be attentive, be expectant in attitude and mindset, desire to hear what's being spoken because you deem what's said is something valuable and something important. And if I could say this, in a one-word summary, that's really Jesus' main point in the parable here. So if you get nothing else or fade off five minutes from now because you're thinking about the picnics and what you're going to eat already— there's the point right there. And it should be the thing that helps you stay on track. Jesus' main point in the parable is when God's speaking, listen. Listen. Pay attention. It's important. It's valuable. Be a good listener. Pay close attention when God is trying to say something to us and that we would be able to respond, that we want to beware of the error of just hearing the audible sound of words, but not really listening to what is actually being said, neglecting to pay attention, or whether it's because we're hard-hearted and we're ignoring and we don't want to hear what's being said, that can be a problem, or whether it's because we're unwilling to follow through and we hear what's said, but we don't like what's said. And so therefore, we're not going to listen and follow through or whether it's just because we're too distracted by other things. We all know the reality, right? All of us of just hearing words, but not really listening to what's being said. If you're married, you know exactly what that means. 
hearing all the words, but not really listening to what the person is actually saying. It's important when someone speaks that we really pay attention. And look, God speaks. And Jesus was who? God. So when Jesus speaks, we want to listen because it's important and never ignore or miss what he's saying, but to have a heart condition where we're prepared and ready to listen, that we want to hear what he has to say. So Jesus goes on now to begin to speak this parable. Verse 3, he says, Behold, a sower went out to sow, to sow seed, the idea is, in hope of the seed producing, bearing fruit and yielding a crop. Sowers typically carried seed pouches, and they systematically would walk through a field. They wouldn't just randomly walk around zigzag. They would systematically walk through a field, and in a systematic way, they would disperse and broadcast seed in a way that was very intentional. But depending upon the condition of the soil, different outcomes would come to pass. And that's what Jesus begins to describe. Verse 4, And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. That would be the footpaths that would walk around the field, as well as at times there were some footpaths through the different fields. And the birds of the air, he says, came and devoured the seed. So he describes the hardened, compact dirt in the footpaths around the fields. And the reason that this happened was the footpaths were constantly walked over, right? They were trampled on again and again and again and again. And because those paths were trampled on and trampled on and trampled on and trampled on, it caused the dirt to be severely compacted and stiff. And it was now hardened into the condition and the state that it was in. And because of that, the seed would not penetrate because of the hardness of the soil. So instead of that, the seed was not finding a receptive ground, and so therefore it resisted the seed from accomplishing its purpose, and Jesus says, and so therefore it became vulnerable, and the birds of the air swooped in and just snatched up the seed and took it away before it was able to produce anything because it never entered in. The second soil he describes in verse 5, he says, some seed also fell onto stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately, quickly, it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched because it had no root, it withered away. So here he refers to a soil condition that was too shallow. So first we have the hard, unreceptive soil. Now we have very shallow soil, and because it was shallow, it did not allow for depth and it hindered ongoing growth. So some of the feed, seed that went out, it fell into parts of the field, but certain parts of the field where that seed fell had not been properly prepared. And because it had not been properly prepared, though on the surface there was soft, fertile soil, directly underneath, just a few inches below, there was hard, stony ground. And because that ground was hard and stony, it did not allow the seed to take root, to send down a root system, which was essential to having long-term growth and production. On the surface, it looked soft, it looked ready, but directly below the surface, there was hard, stony ground. And that's why there was quick growth, but it wasn't lasting growth. 
And what would happen is, as there's just a few inches of dirt, those few inches of dirt would retain a lot of moisture and a lot of warmth because of the rock layer down underneath. And because of that, it appeared very fertile at first. So when the seed was first sown, he says here, it brought immediate results. Real quickly, evident results came about on the surface, but this was just surface results. Quick surface results happen, but because there was no depth and just a surface response, he says in verse six that when the sun came up and it came under the intensity and the heat of the sun, it was scorched. And because he says, verse six, it had no root system, it quickly withered away almost as fast as it quickly sprang up. So without a root system to draw what it needed and survive under pressure and intensity, it was overcome by the intensity of the sun. It couldn't take the heat, and it just withered away and died off quite quickly. The third soil he mentions is in verse 7. Some of the seed, he said, also fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. So this refers to, we might describe the crowded soil. Soil, again, that was not fully and properly prepared by rooting out the weeds and the thorns, it wasn't kept properly prepared and clear from thorns and weeds, which incessantly just keep growing anyway. And because of that, those thorns grew up together with the crop and it steeled away the life and the vitality and it choked out very quickly the production of the seed and the fruitfulness and it began to hinder so that the plant's fruitfulness was choked out by competing things, the weeds and the thorns, that arrested its development and it hindered its fruitfulness. The fourth and final type of soil Jesus describes is in verse 8, where he says, But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop, this was the ideal, and it sprang up and increased and produced some 30-fold some 60 and some 100. So this fourth soil was the good and fertile soil that was well-prepared in its condition, ready for the seed. It was receptive in its environment so that the seed could thrive, so that the seed could enter in, so that it could do what it was supposed to do to its full potential, where it went down, it established a root system, which is necessary for long-term survival by anchoring itself, it also sprang upward, he says there, and began to yield and grow and produce. He said harvest in some areas where the soil was good was 30-fold. Now understand that the idea would be the equivalent of saying 3,000% return. That's pretty impressive for one seed. He says other areas 60-fold, other areas 100-fold. So we're talking about some pretty incredible exponential growth in this good fertile soil here, the fruitfulness varied in different degrees, but good fertile soil that was well-prepared flourished. It was productive. There was fruit and there was ongoing lasting fruit that remained in the harvest. This was the ideal result, of course, of sowing seed into the field and getting good returns. This is the ideal. Now, Jesus having given that parable, verse 9, it says, he then said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, with emphasis, the statement, Jesus emphasizes the importance of really listening to what he was saying to them. 
to make sure that they were paying attention. There was an eagerness to learn, that they wanted to understand, that they longed to grasp and to realize what it was he was conveying. That if the purpose of their ears were not just to hang jewelry upon, but to actually hear what was being said, then Jesus said, if that's the purpose of your ears to hear, then he says, I sure hope you're listening to what it is I'm trying to say to you because I'm conveying a very valuable spiritual truth that he wanted them to grasp. And of course, that message, as we'll see, was the importance of realizing that even as the different soils condition determined the outcome of the seed's benefit being deposited into them, that Jesus is going to go on to say, this is a vital spiritual picture of human hearts so that they would understand that the condition of their hearts in receiving and hearing the word of God was very, very critical to the benefit of the word of God in their lives, as well as as they were going to go out as his servants and be sharing the word of God, that they would realize, lest they become discouraged or be confused, that as they went out like a sower and just sowed the seeds, that they realized there are going to be all types of different conditions that people's hearts are going to be in. And some people will be hard-hearted, and other people may have a very quick, shallow response and then change their mind and walk away. Others may be that good and fertile soil where the word of God really takes root and bears fruit, but that Jesus wanted them to understand there are different conditions in people's hearts. Now, I so appreciate the disciples and the Holy Spirit's honesty. This is one of the things I love about the word of God. Some people you know, get all bothered by the word of God showing the flaws and failures and weaknesses of men in scripture. Quite honestly, I find it encouraged because I'm a failure as well. But I love that the disciples here, look what it says. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. Now, the disciples may have been from time to time slow learners, but the thing I do appreciate is they were honest and they were humble enough to say, all right, Lord, that was, that was an interesting story. That was a really cool illustration. It's an agrarian society. This all made sense to them. They could totally connect to the illustration. And Jesus said to them, listen. And then on the back end, he said, if you got an ear, you better hear what I'm saying. So they realized, look, this is important. So they wait till the crowds leave so they don't look foolish and embarrass their master. They wait till all the crowds leave. And then when they get Jesus alone, they ask for clarification. Lord, you said this is important that we should hear the lesson. So uh, you think you could explain that to us? You think you could, you know, maybe a little bit more there? Just we want to make sure we grasp the lesson. And I, I appreciate their honesty. They needed clarity and they knew, ask the Lord. He wants us to understand. Jesus, folks, always responds to the seeking heart. He always does. Right? What does Jesus say in the word of God in Matthew? He says, ask, you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find. And a lot of times I think the thing that we should be asking and seeking for more than anything is, Lord, I want to understand more. I want to know you better. I want to understand your word and understand your will. It's not necessarily ask for the new Mercedes and you'll get it. Seek after this, you know, a spouse, and you'll find one. And then some of you, because you're seeking so hard, then you go, what did I find this one for? That's not good either. But spiritually, Jesus always wants to give life. He always wants to give us understanding, increase our, our ability to comprehend things spiritually. This is very important to him. 
for all of our lives. And that's what he goes on to begin to describe now. As they ask him about the parable, verse 11, he says to them, now follow what he says here, to you, to his disciples, to his committed learners, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. So Jesus informed them because they were disciples, a disciple is a committed learner who becomes therefore a committed follower, someone who doesn't want to just hear the lecture, they also want to do the spiritual lab work. Sadly, sometimes people spiritually, they, they like spiritual lectures, but lab work is putting the word of God into practice. And just because we hear the word of God doesn't mean that we're following the word of God. Disciples are those who say, I want to learn because I want to live like you, Master. I want to follow those things. I want to be, in a sense, you know, accountable to you and living the way you want me to. So these are his committed learners. And to them, he says, that they had been blessed with the privilege, he says, verse 11, to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. They had been given a privilege as a reward of being genuine seekers that wanted to follow Jesus and wanted to honor the things of the kingdom of God, he says, the mysteries of the kingdom have been made known to you. Now, again, whenever we see that word mystery, musterion, it is in the Greek in the New Testament, don't get the idea that typically comes to our mind, as we've said this before, of a mystery, like a mystery movie where it's like, it's hard to understand. That's a mystery, and it's hard to figure out. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's talking about something that at one time was covered over, but now it's been revealed and disclosed. The easiest analogy for that, I think, is you know, if we think of like a sculpture or a statue, and it's got a sheet over it, and, and at one time it's covered over and you can't see it, but then when the sheet is pulled off, something that was once not seen has now been revealed and made clear. And the Bible speaks at times of these mysteries of the kingdom of God, the fact that Jew and Gentile would come together as one person in Christ, the mystery of the gospel, that salvation would come through Jesus, the Messiah. There's different mysteries referred to that are kingdom principles that Jesus says at one time in prior generations, these things weren't seen, but you see it now. As my disciples, these things have been revealed to you. You understand them. They had received revelation and privilege because they longed to understand and they loved Jesus. But then he goes on to show how sadly others, who as even in that day, had rejected Jesus as the promised Christ. He then goes on to say, verse 11, but, here's the contrast, those who are outside, that is outside of relationship with God, all things come in parables so that, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, seeing that they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear but not understand, lest, or else they would, he says, turn, and they should have their sins forgiven them. So those still living in a spiritual condition outside of relationship with God, Jesus says, due to their unbelief and rejection of what the Holy Spirit was showing, he says, they hear things in parables to, he's going to say, further validate the indication very clearly of their stubborn refusal. He quotes here to reinforce that idea from Isaiah chapter 6. On Wednesday nights right now, we're actually going through the book of Isaiah. We just went through this portion not too long ago. And that passage from Isaiah to 6 there that he quotes describes a time when Israel, in stubbornness of heart, and in loving their own sin and idolatry, in their hard-heartedness, though Isaiah was speaking the word of God to them very clearly, line upon line, precept upon precept, 
that they didn't want to hear the word of God. And because they did not want to hear the word of God and their hearts were hardened and they loved their sin more, they didn't want to change. And that, unfortunately, brought further blindness upon them. That as they shut their ears and shut their eyes, though they could see the obvious circumstances, they didn't perceive what was really going on spiritually because they had been blinding themselves in their own rejection. Though they could clearly hear the messages Isaiah was speaking, they weren't really hearing and listening to what he was saying because they really didn't want to change. And so they were therefore, in a sense, further blinding themselves, not hearing God's voice, and failing, therefore, to understand God's will as they press forward in darkness. And sadly, Isaiah said, therefore, God declared, if they weren't refusing, they would have turned. And if they would have turned, they would have had their sins forgiven. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, Isaiah said. Though your sins be as scarlet, they could be white as snow. But they didn't want to turn, and so therefore they were refusing God. And this was a very dangerous condition, keeping them hindered from God's will. Jesus' point in the midst of what he's saying here, as he refers to, that's why those outside hear things in parable, is very simply this. A parable, which is a story form of teaching, it basically sorts out the listeners. Because see, those who didn't care, those who aren't really interested and have no desire to learn or respond to spiritual truth, they hear what's being spoken in their ear audibly, but all they would hear in Jesus' parable, even as it was read this morning, is, that was an interesting story about farming. Um, wonder what they're going to have to eat at the picnic. And, and there's no real interest, so all they hear is just a, well, that was a cute little story about farming and some seeds and soils, and, and because there's no interest, they don't really press in and they miss to hear the voice of God and what God's trying to say because they have no desire for truth and they don't want to learn. So they just dismiss the story. Whereas those on the other side sorting out the listeners of parables who are disciples, who truly want to know the things of the kingdom of God, who want to follow Jesus, who want to learn, who want to hear the voice of the Lord, they hear the story and they hear Jesus say, if you have an ear to hear, hear what I've just said to you. And they lean in and say, Lord, what is it you're trying to say to us? Lord, would you Lord, we want to know what that parable means. Because Lord, if you're saying that, that you're trying to tell us something, we want to hear your voice. And so the parable has this interesting way where those who aren't interested in the things of God they just hear a cute story and they dismiss it and they prove that their heart's not interested in God or interested in God's word. But those who truly long to hear God's voice, they hear the story of the parable and they want to get the spiritual point. So they press in further and they look to what the parable says because they want to hear the will of God and know the will of God and they search for more light and Jesus rewards them as they begin to see further clarity in regards to the parable. So they've just asked Jesus, Lord, the crowds are gone. We're here because we're your followers. We love you, Jesus. We want to know your will. Would you please tell us what the parable means? So verse 13, Jesus begins now to answer their question. Do you not understand this parable, he says? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus, it seems, asking that question there in verse 13, if you don't get this parable, 
he says, how are you going to get all the other parables? He seems to pretty evidently be implying that this particular parable, of many of his parables, was pretty foundational. And maybe it's why he gave interpretation to this particular parable that someone's heart condition is very important to response to God's word. And according to what Jesus is saying there in verse 13, it appears that failure to understand this foundational spiritual lesson given in this parable would bring hindrance in comprehending other parables and other things that were lessons spiritually about the kingdom of God. It's almost as if, if I can illustrate, you hear Jesus saying, if you can't master addition and subtraction, then how am I ever going to bring you onward to division and multiplication? And things like geometry and calculus, those are hopeless attainments. In other words, what Jesus is trying to drive home to the disciples and to you and I as well is foundational things spiritually are crucial because they unlock other things in the word of God. And so we should never grow tired of simple foundational biblical truths because those are absolutely crucial components to further understanding, to interpreting things in context, to getting greater light and greater understanding. To me, one of the most foolish things people do is try and get too novel and too creative in pulpits. Nothing's new. Ever since Paul wrote it, ain't nothing been new. <laughs> wasn't my idea, wasn't your idea. It's all God's ideas, precept upon precept, line upon line. This is what the Word of God says. And, 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 and to love foundational, simple basics. Listen, you look at anybody who's, who's a good sports coach. What do they primarily focus on, right? Foundations, basics. That's what they try and keep their team rooted in. It's not, look, let me teach you this trick move on the basketball court or the football field. It's foundations, basics. All the extra stuff builds upon the foundations. And so Jesus says, the lesson in this parable, very, very foundation, it helps to understand more important things of the spiritual life as well further down. But what is the foundational lesson of this parable? Well, he's going to graciously give the explanation now in verses 14 down through verse 20. He begins verse 14 by saying to their question, the sower sows the word. Now, Luke's account in Luke chapter 8 of the same parable says that the sower sows the seed, which is the word of God. So that makes it very evident for us when Jesus says he's the sower sowing the seed is basically sowing the word, sowing the word of God. And so the sower is anyone sharing and speaking God's word in various different capacities. Now, to me, the analogy and metaphor Jesus uses here for representing God's word, and there are numerous ones in the New Testament, very beautifully, here's one of the metaphors in the word of God regarding the word of God, and God uses this picture of the scripture, the word of God being like seed. And again, as we said earlier, what do we know of a seed? A seed has contained within it all that is necessary, everything needed for the production of life and growth and a fruitful harvest. God's word is like spiritual seed. In a sense, there is spiritual DNA encoded into the word of God, into its message, into its truths. The seed of God's word being created by God himself has been 
in a sense, breathed his life into it by the Holy Spirit contains supernatural potential. The seed of God's word has supernatural potential to produce spiritual life, spiritual fruit, to yield a spiritual harvest. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the living, enduring the word of God, he refers to it as like incorruptible seed. It's imperishable. It's seed that never corrupts, it never weakens, it never diminishes, it always has the power of God's spirit within it to produce spiritual life, spiritual fruit, spiritual growth, and to yield the harvest. And how wonderful to see the analogy of God's word being pictured like spiritual seed going into human hearts. The word of God being planted into the soil of someone's soul and spirit and what it can bring forth in a person's life, but yet also the word of God's planted like seed, but it must be mingled with faith and it must be watered by the Holy Spirit to activate the full potential of the word of God within a human soul. It's not the problem with the seed, the problem's with the soul. And it's when faith is activated and the Holy Spirit begins to work, that's when the seed is fully empowered and activated to produce, just like sunlight and water with a natural seed. 1 Thessalonians 2 says it this way, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which he says effectively works in you who believe. Do you see the key there? It effectively works in those who believe. Believe what? Those who believe this is not just a book of printed black and white pages and ink like any other book. This is the word of God. This is God's Life breathed into this book that is supernatural in its words and its message and its truth. And when you believe that this is the word of God and you relate to it and respond to it and receive it in that manner, it effectively works within your soul. Paul said regarding the preaching of just the gospel message of salvation in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. See, the gospel can be preached, and he says that simple gospel message has the power to bring salvation to the soul of a human being if they believe upon it and they don't reject it. It has the power to produce that. So the sower is the one who goes out and sows the seed of the word of God. So a sower is anyone sharing and speaking God's word in any capacity. It could be you sharing the gospel with someone on a one-on-one basis and you telling them the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that person can be in any heart condition, but you can be sowing the seed. It could be sharing the gospel message before any size group, in a crusade setting, in a meeting setting. And again, there are going to be different conditions in people's hearts. Sowing the seed like a sower of God's word can be sharing the word of God, again, one-on-one with an individual, maybe in you trying to offer someone counsel and speaking to them what the word of God says, or you trying to provide some instruction for someone's life, or it can be in the teaching of the word of God as God's seed is sown. So it could be the teaching of the word of God in a, in a small group Bible study in a home, or it could be in, a, in a, a meeting of the church, a particular ministry, a youth ministry, a young adult ministry. And again, it's, it's sowing forth the seed of the word of God. It could be teaching in Sunday school classes, 
every Sunday. Certainly, the seed of the Word of God is sown from behind this podium, but it's also sown in five different classrooms over there in digestible-sized portions so they don't choke on it, and they can understand what the truth of God's Word is saying. And there are upwards to some 40 different people in our fellowship here who at least once a month commit their time to prepare and to teach and to sow the seed of God's word into the hearts of our children so that they can understand the word of God in those different classrooms at different ages. And look, the key is this. Our responsibility is really onefold. It's just sowing the seed. We cannot control the responsiveness of the soil of people's hearts. Our role is just to sow the seed of the word of God and to trust the power of the seed to work and allow it to do what it alone has the capability to do. And let me briefly say this before I move on. It is not the technique of how the seed that was sown that determined the outcome in the field for the farmer. It had nothing to do with how the seed was sown. It wasn't as if the farmer was... And if, and if he just was slick enough in the way he sowed the seed that somehow by doing that, that made a difference because his technique in sowing was so awesome. That's why the seed really produced. He's just got a seed sowing technique that, man, it just has such fruitfulness and impact. And look, let me just bring that over from a spiritual perspective. I'm not saying that a person should be boring when they teach the word of God. Forgive me if I am from time to time. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with exercising the gift of teaching and who we are and the personality we have, but we put way too much emphasis in the modern church these days upon the presentation of how we try and communicate from the Word of, the word of God from, from podiums. We think we got to prowl the stage, keep people's attention. The technique's not going to matter. The truth is what matters. The technique oftentimes just becomes really just an entertaining presentation and people walk out with cotton candy, and they have no real meat to sustain them through Tuesday morning. So again, the seed is where the power is. It wasn't how the sower sowed the seed. It was the fact that the seed has the power, and the presentation was not the crucial thing. The same with God's word. And Jesus is going to show different heart conditions that the seed goes into. That has a real bearing on whether the seed can really have its intended impact. He goes on, verse 15, to speak about the first kind of condition of a heart, like the soil. He says, these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown, verse 15, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. So notice the first heart condition in comparison to the first type of soil, the wayside soil, is a heart condition that is hard, Jesus says, and that is unreceptive. Just like the hard, compacted soil on the wayside path, people's hearts at times, hear me, for various different reasons, for various different reasons, people's hearts at times can be hard and shut off to the Word of God. And just like that hard soil, the inward condition of a person's heart can have no receptivity to what God is speaking. And as a result, when a person has a hard, unreceptive heart, they make themselves, Jesus says, vulnerable to what? To the tactics of, the, of Satan himself, who quickly seeing that hard-heartedness and lack of receptiveness, Satan swoops in quickly in a strategic way and steals away the truth and the light 
and he replaces it with lies and further darkness and snatches away the seed before it can enter in and bring revelation. And he sees the person's apathy. He sees the person's disinterest. He sees a person in proud refusal or stubbornness, not wanting to hear what God's saying. And Jesus says the danger is, is that opens the door to Satan's work. It opens the door and makes a person vulnerable like a thief. He comes and robs the person from being able to really hear what God's saying so they won't respond. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan is the God of this age who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So when someone does not believe and does not want to believe, they, in a sense, make them vulnerable to being blinded spiritually by Satan as he comes in and he snatches away the truth of God, and that's a dangerous, dangerous heart condition to be hard and unreceptive. Secondly, Jesus says the other heart condition that he referred to, verse 16, likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word of God, immediately they receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves and they endure only for a time, but afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So this describes, secondly, the shallow heart condition. Person having an unprepared, shallow heart response to the word of God, where notice Jesus describes in verse 16 and 17 here how there initially is enthusiastic response. That at first, there's this very enthusiastic response to the word of God, but Jesus says it's just a shallow response. There's no real depth that took place, and just like the shallow ground with immediate signs of life and growth, but withered quickly because of a lack of being rooted so it did not have long-term depth where it continued to draw what it needed to sustain itself, people, Jesus says, can have a very shallow response to God's word. And that's what he's describing here, where there's immediate, enthusiastic response to God's word initially. Someone is stirred emotionally. There's a lot of passion and excitement initially. They're very receptive to what they hear from God. And they get super excited, and they're, they're glad about what God's word says. And there's the evidence of quick zeal and initial passion. And, and I'm going to do that, and I'm so excited, and I can't wait to... And they appear to be very enthusiastic about what God said and joyful, yet Jesus says the spiritual excitement is superficial. It's just a shallow response to the word of God. There's no real depth of commitment that has happened down inside of their will. It was an emotional enthusiasm, but further down, the will did not really embrace in a true inward decision in the depth of the heart what God's word says. So it's a strong response in the emotions, but it never really seems to touch the will, and they never become rooted in their decision to respond to God's word. They're very stirred, but real change down within didn't really happen, Jesus says. And as the result of that, he describes their spiritual response, he says, though they receive it with gladness, he says, it only endures, verse 17, look what he says, endures for a time. The idea there is it is short-lived spiritual endurance. It's very short-lived. And then he says what begins to happen, verse 17, is he says, because then when tribulation or persecution arises, and notice why? 
for the word of God's sake. So once challenges come in life, some difficulties due to obediently living out the word of God, and would we all agree, living out God's word is not easy. It's hard. And sometimes it's difficult to obey God's word. It's harder to live for God and obey God's word and stand on God's word than to do otherwise. And so he says, when it gets to be difficult for following the word of God, they then stumble. The idea is they fall away. They, they begin to decide because it was just a shallow response. You know what? Following God's just a little too hard. I mean, I was going to obey the scripture and, and, and because it was just a shallow response, it didn't come from the will. They basically wither and they draw back and they don't stand on the principle of scripture. They don't follow through in obedience with the word of God, but pull away. And Jesus said, sometimes that even happens from persecution due to the word. Let's say a person starts to be mistreated for obeying the word of God, for following the scripture. They start to get mocked or they start to find it's difficult. And then a person sadly sometimes decides they don't want to suffer for Jesus or they don't want to suffer for standing on the truth of scripture. So they recoil because their commitment was just shallow and they turn away. And Jesus cautions against this and he describes how sometimes the pressures of hardship and intensity expose a shallow heart response to the word of God. And he points this out as something that is not good because it lacks real commitment to God's word. He then goes on, verse 18 and 19, he said, Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. When they hear the word, but yet the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke out the word, the word of God's effect, and it becomes unfruitful. So lastly, he prepares or describes this unprepared, not lastly, but the third of the unhealthy soils that's unprepared is we might say a crowded heart, a heart that finds itself so if you would, you know, filled with so many other things competing for the word of God and its power to work within us, that just like the thorns choked out the life and fruitfulness and the growth of the plant, he says weeds and thorns within the human heart condition at times, if left there, can crowd out and choke out spiritual fruitfulness in our lives when we hear the word of God as people. And he describes three things particular. It's probably not exhaustive, but three things he mentions that can hinder and choke out fruitful response to the word of God. The one thing he says that can be a problem is sometimes God's word is choked out in the life of a person because simply of the cares of this world. That is all the different cares and concerns of what it involves to do life on earth. We might just say worldly affairs, living life on this earth, caring too much about worldly affairs, being way too attached to the affairs of the world, or allowing just the worries of this world and earthly life to be so consuming that they control our way of life more than the word of God controls our way of life. And we're so concerned and care so much about worldly, earthly living that it arrests the power of the word of God within our life, and it chokes out the power of God's word to bring real spiritual fruitfulness in our lives. So the cares of the world can hinder us spiritually. Jesus secondly mentions also the deceitfulness of riches is another thorn or weed that can choke out spiritual life. And notice he calls it the deceitfulness. Don't miss that. The deceitfulness 
of riches. And of course, what he's describing there is the deceptive idea that we just always need more financially. We always need more materially. That's where happiness lies. That's where contentment is found. That's where I can finally be fulfilled. And it keeps driving us to obtain more money, the higher standard of living, nicer things, more materialism, whatever it may be. And look, this is a tremendous challenge, let's just be very candid, in the American culture. That's a real difficulty for us because we live in a very affluent culture that, in a sense, incentivizes and prompts us to live in this way. And it's a challenge as an American Christian. 1 Timothy 6 talks about how the love of money can become a root of all kinds of evil spiritually in a person's life. He doesn't say money. Money is an instrument. It's neutral. Money is a wonderful servant. It's just a horrible master. And it's the love of money that can cause a person to really err off track. And it can sometimes choke out spiritual fruitfulness in someone's life. It can hinder us spiritually if we're not careful. And then thirdly, he mentions just simply the desire for other things can choke out spiritual life. And that could be two things. The desire of other things in the sense of normal, acceptable desires, but sometimes our desires and drives for certain things can eclipse our desire to want to obey God above all else. And sometimes normal, natural desires can just become so important, the desire to do this, the desire to pursue that, the desire to accomplish this, and it sidetracks us and derails us, and it chokes out the ultimate power of the Word of God in our life. And because we're chasing this desire, we, in a sense, become hindered in our spiritual fruitful development. As well as certainly the desire for other things can choke out the spiritual life, I think certainly sinful desires should never be overlooked. And sometimes one of the biggest hindrances to even a believer's spiritual life is they have too much desire for a particular sin that they want to keep indulging, and they desire to remain in that sin more than they do to honor the Word of God and to repent of that sin, and it becomes a hindrance that chokes out their spiritual life. And they live as a Christian, but a carnal Christian who is in an arrested state of development because they can't let go of their desire for sinful things, and it chokes their spiritual life. Well, the obvious ideal condition Jesus describes in the end in verse 20, but these are the ones sown on good ground. Again, this is the fertile soil. Here's the ideal. It's evident. This is pretty obvious what we all want to be, those who hear the word of God, and then we accept it, that is, we embrace it, we let it rule over us, and then bear fruit some 30, 60, and 100-fold. So this is the ideal heart, prepared to respond to God's word, not superficially, not in a way where we're letting other things arrest the development of God's work in our life. We're keeping our hearts weeded and open. And as we hear God's word continually, we want to keep our heart prepared and receptive and fertile because we want the ultimate impact of God's word to bear good fruit in our lives. And notice the degree of fruitfulness varies from time to time in different life seasons. That's okay. And it even varies person to person. It may be that at one season you're producing this kind of fruit. In another season, maybe it's even more fruit. Or maybe in one person's life, they're really growing at this pace. Another person is growing, but they're just kind of growing at this pace. The bottom line is we want God's word to have maximum impact in our lives. And guess who is one of the greatest people in control of that? 
me, you. God, I want my heart to be good and fertile soil. Lord, I want your word to have maximum impact in our lives. Look, don't overlook that for yourself. And as you share the word of God, don't diminish the importance of praying, God, prepare people's hearts that they would be ready and receptive because I'm telling you that makes a crucial, crucial difference.